a Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to have another very interesting show. I have invited on Dr. Russ Jaffe, who is the founder and chairman of Perk Integrative Health, LLC, and it is a company that offers the world scientifically proven integrative health solutions to speed the transition from sick care to helpful caring or to a true health care system, a wellness care system, you could say. Uh, Russ Jaffe has had more than 40 years of experience contributing to molecular biology and clinical diagnostics. He has authored over 100 articles on this subject. He has received his BS, his MD, and PhD from Boston University School of Medicine, completed a residency training in clinical chemistry at the National Institutes of Health, and remained on the permanent senior staff there before pursuing other interests, including starting the Health Studies Collegium Think Tank. Russ is a board certified in clinical pathology and chemical pathology. He has a reputation that is world-renowned and has been doing work with people individually and collectively, including the helping of drafting legislation for the United States Congress. So to bring forward the ideas of true health care and true wellness, distinct from the essentially um, sickness care system we currently have, we're going to speak today about eight biomarkers that show how people can achieve lasting health. No, not forever. We're not talking about immortality, at least not today, but about having a very healthy, robust life. And there are ways that Russ and his team have identified over the course of decades of study that can really help to guide us in the otherwise serious morass of nutritional information. So, Russ Jaffe, such a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, I said a lot in a short amount of time, and I'd like you, if you would, to elucidate those eight biomarkers that you have distilled from hundreds that you feel our audience and others should be most keen and tuned in about. Right. So as an internist, as a clinical chemist and pathologist and biochemist and cross-trained in a number of areas, I've been interested, as many people are, in how to get beyond the concept of high-level wellness to the fact of personalized quality, primary, proactive, predictive, personalized prevention. And it does mean looking at the 100,000-plus tests that exist, narrowing that down to a few thousand biomarkers, and then narrowing that down to just eight tests that cover all of epigenetics. And epigenetics, by the way, is not genetics, but epigenetics is lifestyle. Epigenetics is the 92% of your lifetime. After genetics, epi in ancient Greek, meaning after and beyond. Beyond. So, So separate from, it is what you can influence with your habits of daily living, and you can reduce your risk based on what you eat, drink, think, and do. Now, you can do that in general, and in general, it's a good thing to be good. But in specific, if you want to know where you are strong and where you're at risk, you need these eight predictive biomarker tests. And by the way, they cover all of epigenetics. You don't need any more tests 
to cover all of the things you can influence and we think you should influence. You know, my dear friend, cellular biologist, Bruce Lipton, Mm -hmm. was very involved in helping to father the entire idea of epigenetics Mm -hmm. so we understand some of its constituent parts, including the what you refer to, the role of the mind, mm-hmm. the role of emotions, really, our psycho-neuroimmunological kind of a perspective and imprint our belief systems, how that actually influences cellular behavior. Well, for most of us, because we really don't understand where our emotions come from and the neurohormones that uh, induce those emotions, yes. we're really at the mercy of our emotions. Uh, what I was guided to is called engaged non-attachment. And it's a practice. And when you practice being completely engaged as well as completely non-attached, you find that your emotions are just merely feelings and we're no longer at the mercy. We feel, we feel, but below the surface, the emotions are no longer in control, nor should they be. Absolutely. As an adolescent, generally our emotions are in control. As a mature adult, we would want something more mindful, something more self-aware, something more independent and interdependent, and that's where the practice of engaged non-attachment, not detachment, because detachment is the other side of attachment. Non-attachment is parallel but non-intersecting. So imagine two lines that are parallel but they never intersect. One of them, the other. It's a choice. Non-attachment means being engaged with every moment of meaningful life, and yet to the outcome. I appreciate the distinction. Well, you know some of the people I've studied with. When you lose the entire country, when you lose the entire culture, and you can still persevere and rebuild after that, whatever I consider to be the stresses of my life pale, pale by comparison. (laughs) And it helps to be with people who have undertaken what I would call much higher levels of intense stress and are still joyful, still engaged, and still non-attached. Absolutely. Recently, I think it was 60 Minutes that did a segment, Ross, on a gentleman in the refugee camps in Syria Mm -hmm. who was a comedian Mm -hmm. and had been involved in theater. And he was playing with the children under these most seemingly difficult of circumstances and making them laugh, Mm -hmm. and playing with them, and utterly transcending, if you will, the outer normal interpretation of life in that context. My son, who's nearing 30, has spent half of his life teaching, learning clowning and teaching clowning to youngsters. So they do everything from face painting to... Sky does everything from face painting to unicycling with the Trenton Clown Squad, and now they're extending this to Philadelphia and hopefully other places, because if middle school and high school children have something productive to engage with, they're not likely to be on the streets getting into trouble. Oh, my God, I love it. And you know who I, you're going to appreciate this, as would Sky, but Bruce Lipton actually recently introduced me to none other than Patch Adams. Oh, that's very uh, cool. Patch was on the show in January, and I, in fact, he came to New York, and we had a whole evening with Patch, a Better World sponsor. Great. Yeah. By the way, Bruce was at Schumacher College when Sky was in residence there, and so they connected there and have continued since. 
wonderful. I'm so glad to hear it. If not, I would have gladly mm-hmm. made the introductions. I'm, does he know Patch? Who, Sky? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, remember that Patch and J.J. Johnson studied with Queen Wu when I studied Chinese medicine in that seven-year apprenticeship. So since Patch was in the greater Washington area before okay. they moved to West Virginia, right. yeah. In fact, Patch may have even at one point diapered Sky. I don't, I'm not quite <laughs> sure of that. I think he could, despite epigenetics, I think he gave him the clown gene. <laughs> no, he came in with that. He's, he's a lot of things, but the clown gene is his. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. I haven't seen Sky since he was like eight or nine years old. I mean, it was so long ago. It's so funny. I'm glad to hear the story. But back to the biomarkers, mm-hmm. because on one hand, we we both fully agree, and we even have so many friends in common who appreciate the importance of emotion and the transcendence of emotion, as you're saying, in a in a mature adult, and the role of emotion in the landscape of our human beingness. We want to be able to feel. We want to be able to feel. However, to be governed by those feelings. Nor, more importantly, do we want those feelings below our level of awareness to actually be determining our choices. Absolutely, okay. so-called subconscious. Whatever we call it, for most people, we're not self-aware enough to get out of the swamp, to get out of the emotional complexities of early childhood trauma. Prenatal. Maybe even prenatal, maybe transgenerational. You know, now that we've learned about RNA being transmitted and learned over generations, it certainly makes more plausible uh, an ever more complex interdependence with reality, which is the nature of life as far as I can tell. Correct. I know. In my role as a therapist, and certainly um, social science isn't as hard as hard molecular, but nonetheless, I mean, through observation over time, we definitely see relationships between the generations and between uh, prenatal life, Mm -hmm. that initial nine months, and later outcomes, behaviors, attitudes, and the like. Yes, and for those who follow, yes, and for those who follow our approaches, they would do six months of preconceptional care because the risk of having a healthy child today has gone, you know, a century plus ago, if you had good fetal and maternal care, you had high levels of survival and low levels of neurodevelopmental challenges. So when I was a young doctor, autism spectrum disorder was still 1 in 10,000, then it went to 1 in 1,000, then it went to 1 in 100, and it's now 1 in 50 and rising. And then you add to that the Down syndrome as well as the other neurodevelopmental challenges And some people are seeing in the not-too-distant future that maybe one out of ten children will be neurodevelopmentally challenged. And so we have for a long time been recommending to those who want to do preconceptional care for six months so that they can have a healthier product of conception. And, yes, if you set the child off on a good start, it's a lot easier than correcting problems later. That's beautiful. I'm so glad to hear this. I would like to ask you if you feel that not to divert our attention from the eight biomarkers, which I do want to cover, but do you feel that that increase in autism is directly correlated with the increase of vaccinations that contain mercury? I I don't have any feelings about those because those questions 
are so complex that we have to leave it to the science. Now, the what sci- does the science suggest? The science suggests it's an enormously complicated subject that would be the subject for a whole hour's discussion at some point, and I don't have an expertise that would allow me to speak quite ex cathedra. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do, um, I am familiar enough with the issue and engaged enough with the issue mm-hmm. that I realize how complicated it is. And yes, we want to reduce the amount of mercury that people are exposed to. I think there's almost universal agreement on that. Um, but, uh, you know, but, but, but I think opinions on complex questions where we need more science should be held and people should concentrate on doing the science, yes. which still needs to be done in regard to vaccinations. Um, but we should concentrate on doing the science and then letting the science speak. Because eventually the science will speak, and then it won't matter what your opinion is, because That's scientific correct. method is slow, but it's careful. And in the best cases, it can help shine a light. And we are in the midst of many changes in our approach to health and well-being. We're moving more upstream. We're looking more at primary proactive prevention. We're looking less at downstream symptom suppressive, symptom reactive care. And consistent with that would be doing whatever you could to maintain the health of the child, the mother, the father, in a healthy environment, um, and urge that the science be done to answer some of these questions. Absolutely. I mean, the Dr. Wakefield and others have actually provided a lot of science. No, Dr. Wakefield, for, for all of, of his commendable qualities, he's never claimed to be a scientist. He's never claimed to do science. He did an anecdotal study that got published and then retroactively rescinded. He lost his license for whatever reason. Um, and he has a video political for whatever reason, mm-hmm. um, and he has a very powerful, very personal, um, uh, basically video made from his book um, where he presents his point of view. And if folks are interested in his point of view, they should talk to him. Yes, indeed. So coming around, because I want to talk with you about your work of decades length and mm-hmm. of... Uh, scientific rigor of these eight biomarkers that you feel our world population could benefit from yes, with but, attention to but, but, but let me be clear that my feelings have nothing to do with the facts. And the facts are that the eight biomarkers cover all of lifestyle, all of epigenetics, all of the things you can influence, and therefore they should be done and you should throw away the lab usual range because it gives you no useful information. Don't even look at it. If you could have it disappear, that would be a benefit. And so too many of my colleagues compare the value for the patient with some range, and because so many people are deficient, very often the range reflects the deficiency that people have, because no one ever said that the normal range had anything to do with normality. It has to do with statistical usualness. So usual and normal in statistics are the same. And by the way, just recently in the New York Times, it was a major misunderstanding because when you use a nutrient as a drug, it will usually fail. And the report from the New York Times basically said in regard to vitamin D, which is one of the eight biomarkers, that you don't need to measure it, you don't need to supplement because everybody is low and that's normal. Now, statistically, that is true, but it's misleading if the audience thinks that normal has anything to do with the common 
use of the word normal as in normal or abnormal. It's a statistical term. So forget about the lab usual range. There are eight biomarkers. We know what the best outcome goal value or goal range is for each of those eight tests. If you're at your goal value, you should celebrate. If you're not at your goal value, you should change your habits for three to six months and then come back and remeasure. And you can gain decades of quality life in a few months simply by taking a few healthier habit steps, maybe under the guidance of a nutritionist or a health coach or a professional who really is enabled. That is, they really have studied the kind of stuff that I didn't learn at NIH and I didn't learn at Boston University. But I went out to find, actually to debunk originally, but then I found my ignorance and, and decided to get more educated. So um, we know the eight biomarkers that cover lifestyle. We know we want to cover lifestyle because that's the thing you can do something about. So these goal points, Russ, replace the idea of a, a norm range, which is based on, just kind of translating, uh, which is based on a common denominator of health and really, honestly, ill health. So it's not much of a healthy range at all. And what you've done is you've set up essentially um, a new paradigm of a wellness definition of an optimal functionality of a human being. Yes, and very important to understand that I am clearly saying that if you ignored the range on the report, you would be less confused and better off. And if you think that that range has any meaning, I will explain to you why it doesn't. Because every test in use, the 100 plus thousand tests that are in clinical use, between 50 and 100 people were used to determine what the range for the test is. And you might not even be among the population that was tested. And what you said is 100% correct. The term normal means usual, means common. It's a statistical mathematical term. But it's on almost every lab test report. And most doctors and most people think that it means healthy because it's the normal range. It's the same idea of saying no disease, you're healthy. What well, absent yes, definition is that? No, but that's a very common definition. If, if the doctor's goal, exactly true. the doctor's goal, and the doctors are trained to, to, to focus this way, if the doctor can achieve symptom relief, if the doctor can achieve a remission, so you get to the midpoint, very often the doctor will say, well, that's the best I can do because that's what I was educated to do. Exactly. And those of us who go beyond that have probably – been cross-trained outside of the conventional uh, world. Truly. And I can understand why my colleagues are dismissive uh, out of ignorance. Um, I can understand why the majority of physicians are, after 8,000 hours of training, they just want to go practice medicine. They don't want to go out and look for other answers. I fortunately had the good, the good fortune, the, the opportunity, to go and try to debunk the things that people told me might help from acupuncture yeah yeah from acupuncture to ayurveda and, and mm -hmm. yoga as a as a therapy mm -hmm. um and i was very fortunate to meet people who knew a lot more than i did and i was able to first sit at their feet as an acolyte and then in most cases i became their doctor which is a very interesting transition <laughs> yes you could say that truly you were you had that purview mm. 
had you peek into what your medical training was mm -hmm. and appreciate its strengths, mm -hmm. but more than anything, you noted its weaknesses right. and how you needed to reframe it toward um, an idea of wellness. And you are recognized as one of the people, pioneers, yes, in the world of wellness. In the right. establishment, I'm going to say this, he's mm -hmm. blushing, um, uh, as a wellness physician and pioneering that whole idea of an an affirmative idea of what health and well-being would mm -hmm. be about instead of uh, you're healthy. How do I know? You're not sick. Well, actually, it was 1974 that John Travis and I coined the term wellness medicine. For the next five years, well, I, would right. give talks, I would give talks about wellness medicine. And routinely, the people would look around the room when you put together the two words wellness and medicine in the same sentence or phrase. Um, so yes, yeah, so we've done compute. <laughs> and then in the mid, in the early '80s, I think it was like '83. There were a few of us, and we came up with the concept of consumer-driven health, that the consumers could drive the transition in healthcare. Oh, a year later, Bill Whitson got it, it, got the phrase into Time magazine. Then Lifestyles of Health and Sustainability, Lojas, picked up on this, and it's become their central theme. So there is science. When people say we just need more studies because we don't know any answers and we just don't know enough and therefore do nothing, maybe they don't know what we know. And you do have to go out and look for it. It is hard because on the web today you have some lovely stuff that's made up in a marketing department somewhere to look like it's evidence. And then you sometimes have evidence that just lays around without even being able to easily understand it because it's written in such a dense or technical or scientific way. Um, and I think that we as scientists have an obligation to be able to tell the truth as we understand it based on the facts. And if we have opinions, that's fine. But while I occasionally do have an opinion, I don't pay much attention to my own opinions, but I do believe that facts matter, and we have now the unique opportunity at a unique turning point in history, the 21st century, as Uwe Reinhardt, the famous Princeton health economist, says, if you just project the current system forward one generation, everyone will be in a hospital bed taking care of the person next to them, and nobody's going to be working or paying taxes. This is clearly not sustainable. So if we're going to hear that, that's great. Yes. And if we're actually going to speed the transition we're talking about, the consumers need to be engaged about themselves, their loved ones, their parents and children, and work with those of us who as scientists say we do know enough to save a million lives a year. We know enough to add eight trillion dollars to the balance sheet of the country each year. A half a million people die from the complications of diabetes. That's a fact. Diabetes kills. Diabetes costs. Diabetes is a choice. David Rodbard took many years to prove... Both types of diabetes? Not only type 1 and 2, but you know there's type 3 now? I've heard. Okay. So all types of diabetes... Are a choice. All types of diabetes are a choice. All diabetes is a choice. David Rodbard spent many years and many millions of public health dollars, proving that if you're a diabetic, type 1, type 2, type 3, type 7, if you're a diabetic, if you keep your blood sugar healthy between 70 and 100 or 80 and 110, you have no complications. Did you hear what I said? No complications. 
you have no stroke risk, you have no heart attack risk, you have no atherosclerosis risk. All of those happen when you develop the resistance to insulin because of lacking things you need or accumulating too much toxin that you don't need. Lifestyle choices. These are all lifestyle choices. This is about what you eat and drink, what you think and do. And you can try to take 2B6 to equal a B12, but that doesn't work. You actually have to take the nutrients, and I find that the forms of nutrients shown beneficial in clinical studies work, but the commercial workalikes don't. And so we, in anything that I do, only use the forms shown beneficial in clinical outcome studies. And you would think everyone does that, but it's much more profitable to do things differently. Awesome. This is, pardon me, you know, I'm fairly advanced, but also you show me where I'm not. <laughs> and uh, I would have thought that about type 2 and type 3 diabetes. After all, one of our friends here at A Better World is uh, Dr. Gabriel Cousins, uh-huh. who goes around the world teaching people about uh, lifestyle, governments actually, uh, for their populations. Um, so I'm very familiar with the treatment and also the work of Gary Null that I'm familiar, familiar with for almost 30 years, but not type 1. So type 1, type 1, type 2, type 3, the issue is always and only about excess or deficit in sugar. If you're type 1, and we have oodles of examples of this, and I don't think I've mentioned this to you, Mitch, but we have the most successful pilot outcome study in type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes. So for people who say, gee, is there any evidence? Yes, we've published type 1 and type 2. The most successful pilot study in any form of diabetes are the multiple studies we've done. We did one with type 1. We did one with type 2. And what we found was really very simple, that when you ate foods that you were immune compatible with, when you had enough antioxidants based on knowing how much ascorbate to take, when each of your nutrients was in their healthier or optimum value or range, Mm -hmm. gosh, now being diabetic is just a term. It's not an outcome. It is not being a diabetic that gives you atherosclerosis and all the cardiovascular complications. It's having blood sugar that's out of control, having a lack of insulin reactivity or being resistant to insulin. Now, if you're a type 1 diabetic and you keep your blood sugar between 70 and 110, you don't get any complications. You're still diabetic, whether you're type 1, type 2, or type 3. The question is, does being a diabetic cause complications? No, having abnormal blood sugar causes complications. That's the choice. We can choose our blood sugar. I got it. So what then, I mean, since we've gone down this path, what then would define being diabetic? Oh, diabetes is a diagnosis, and I will leave that to diagnosticians. What I'm talking about is people and how people with various diagnoses can live a high quality of life for a very long period of time. And by the way, I have a type 1 diabetic who's been type 1 for 70 years and has buried a lot of doctors. (laughs) Transcend the diagnosis. That's what I'm hearing. Mm -hmm. Yes, got it. So, do, you know that, do you know that it's been said, and I think there's some evidence for this, that more people die of their diagnosis than of their disease? Yeah. So I am actively on the approach that says I don't want to talk about diagnosis. I don't want to focus on diagnosis. 
I don't want you to think about diagnosis. And I think one of the most helpful things I do for people is explain to them that their case is so unique and complex that there is no diagnosis. And the diagnosis that they were given or diagnoses that they were given were just approximations. And since they're not approximate enough, they're not detailed enough, they're not personalized enough in the time of personalized medicine. They're somewhat meaningless. Not somewhat. They're just meaningless. Not only meaningless. Thank you. More people die of their diagnosis than of their disease. People worry because of what they believe the diagnosis to mean, which makes everything worse, and has nothing to do with their particular situation. So what I want to do is remove the obstacles to recovery and evoke the healing responses so that you have a diagnosis, you are a diagnosis if you wish, but more importantly you're a person to whom that is simply a label and not destiny. A man after my own heart, Russell Jaffe, truly. Let's let everyone know you are listening to Mitchell J. Rabin on A Better World Radio. We're on every Wednesday at 6 p.m., as well as at other times throughout the week as well. We're also on radio, on television in Manhattan every Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, of course, as well as online at www.abetterworld.tv. We have a weekly free newsletter, and if you don't yet get it, please sign up for it at that same website, abetterworld.tv. Thanks so much for joining us. We love that you tune in from all over the world and get what we have to share here at A Better World for you. So, Dr. Russ Jaffe, I want to pick up on this here because this is something that's very near and dear to my heart and one of my roles in doing the coaching work and the counseling and therapy that I do has a lot to do with disabusing people of this idea of diagnosis. And the body of work called the German New Medicine um, that I'm sure you're aware of, and it's um, another subsequent uh, form of that is called totobiology, which very few people know about. In fact, I helped to bring it to the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, that's based on the Moroccan Jewish mm -hmm. physician, Dr. Claude Sabah, mm -hmm. and I met him up in Montreal some years back and mm -hmm. uh, brought that work to New York mm -hmm. and to the United States. It was really interesting. We had lots of healthcare practitioners, psychiatrists, psychologists, lawyers, doctors of all stripes come and get educated in looking at the stresses and the emotional conflicts involved in a person's life, as well as largely diagnosis. In fact, we call it the diagnosis conflict. Mm -hmm. And how do people reckon with that diagnosis? And we would always say that the person who listened to the doctor say, I don't like what I have to say to you, and you, the patient says right back, you know what, I don't like what you're about to say either, so don't even bother saying it, I'm out of here. But thank you very much. That patient, you know, I'm having a little fun here, but that patient shows a strength of character and of immune function, if you will, not to be subject to the supposed authority of the doctor to simply acquiesce to the diagnosis and the stress that would come from that. So I know you appreciate what I'm saying because mm -hmm. you made it clear that you are on that path and you have been for so long. Yes, those of us who are functional, integrative, holistic, comprehensive, those of us who are uh, on the social biology side, the social system side yes. uh, of healthcare and medicine, um, most of us stopped fighting with the diagnosis and stopped fighting with the diseases and stopped fighting entirely, even with the infections, 
because it's a losing proposition. And if you want to be successful, you remove obstacles to recovery. You do that in a scientific and evidence-based way. You evoke healing responses, and you see what's left. Because it turns out what we call illness simply reveals our risks or our limitations. And if we see it as an opportunity, as opposed to a catastrophe or a danger, we can actually learn from it. By analogy, in a garden, if there is a pest, it means the plants or the soil is weak. And as you know, we have a permaculture biodynamic food forest in our front yard, and I want you to know we have no pests in our garden. A beetle, a, a, you know, a beetle occasionally flies by and stops on a leaf and takes a bite and flies away because healthy plants put out protective chemicals to prevent the pests from eating them. And on the other hand, if you find the weevils eating your plants, they're weak. The same thing with people. So we have had a love affair with making the right diagnosis and giving the right treatment to suppress that disease. When we started to do our scientific studies, we accepted the very high burden of starting only with people who are already under best standard of conventional care. So in our type 1 population, we had people starting, all of whom were at best standard of care. The control group continued under best standard of care. The experimental group did what we said, and in just six months gained 20-plus years of quality life, a reduction in hemoglobin A1C of a full milligram percent, unprecedented in the diabetes treatment world because you can't get that kind of result unless you evoke healing responses and remove obstacles to recovery. But if you do that, if you remove obstacles and evoke healing responses, you can get those kinds of results and consistently. And I'm glad to say that while we do pilot studies to show that all of inflammation and all of autoimmunity are really just repair deficits and when you evoke the healing response and restore immune tolerance and correct the deficiencies in essential nutrients and start to get the toxins out by enabling detoxification, then the 21st century becomes an opportunity to thrive as opposed to an opportunity to suffer. So beautifully put. So what I hear you saying to extract from this and distill it, I should say, is that rather than pursuing the information behind a diagnosis, and treating that, rather, your approach has been and is, and what you do with Burke and with the ELISA ACT test, which you formulated many years ago and became world-renowned for, is a proactive approach which allows you to build the terrain, build the immune function, build everything, the blood, etc., so that you are a force to be reckoned with and no pest or pesticide or anything is going to infiltrate your garden. Is that what I hear you saying? Yes, and it is such a different kind of gardening that when people who use conventional gardening come to our permaculture biodynamic food forest, they say, where's the garden? Because there are no rows. You never till. You're interdependent in regard to the plants. Their little roots grow together. They have all sorts of little bacteria that help from one plant to the next. And by the way, our plants tend to be twice as tall as they normally are. So we're growing asparagus. Look up asparagus in, uh, online or in the Wikipedia. It'll say that it grows four feet tall when it bolts, and ours were eight feet tall. And so I sent them to my friends in Bavaria who, make a, who love asparagus, spargel as they call it. And they immediately messaged back, did I Photoshop that? 
I said, well, I'm sure someone could have photoshopped it, but I didn't. And indeed, the asparagus were twice as tall. We had a 16-foot-tall sunflower. So my son, who's almost six feet tall, looks very small under a 16-foot sunflower. You have your own Findhorn in your front yard. <laughs> yep. Yep. No, we do. That's and we have and we have mushroom guilds in the backyard, and we have a floodplain that we amble on, and that keeps the chemicals away and helps bring breezes up the hill. And now we're planting in another. I think this year we planted in another 18 bearing trees, from pawpaws to jujubes to nectarines to two plums and apricots and apples and what this have is you. In Virginia. In Virginia. At the property. Yeah. Whew. I haven't been there in a while. It's time to come back. You, you, yes, it's a, it's it's an evolving place. Oh but my come God. visit. There's something very interesting here too, though. There is a a metaphysical feature to what you're implying here, which is that if you cannot see the boundaries between what you would refer to as a garden or not or a forest, that implies something interesting about human boundaries mm-hmm. or boundarylessness. Mm-hmm. And not to necessarily go in that direction, because I would like to understand your understanding of biology among the boundaried human for the most part. And then we could also look at the collective. Um, this is very interesting, because this also means that the individual is then becoming an example to the other individuals in his species or her species. Well, that's the work called spreading. So if you practice healthier habits, the people around you get healthier. If you practice ill health habits, the people around you get unhealthy. And that's now pretty well established. More importantly, what it really shows, if you look at a few hundred studies, what it shows is that if you give people incentives, emotional, psychological, and financial, but you give them incentives and you remind them that when they lose the weight, it's because their hyperactive fork was no longer hyperactive. Or more importantly, they were now eating foods they could digest, assimilate, and eliminate without immune burden. They had enough fiber and prebiotics. They had enough healthy bugs and probiotics. They had enough recycled glutamine and symbiotics to energize the repair of their gut wall. A lot of people who have digestive issues kind of heard about fiber, they've kind of heard about probiotics, but they're not aware that you need the third component, the symbiotics, the recycled glutamine, as an energy source to repair the gut wall. And when you use the three together, you have a powerful synergy of benefits. So interesting. In what forms do you get that glutamine? The glutamine is called Endurapacard. We pioneered and patented it globally. It is recycled with pyridoxal alpha-ketoglutarate pack. It's a capsule. You take three on rising. You take three before bed. And it gives you the equivalent of ten times that amount of glutamine. So you don't have to worry about glutamate buildup. And you do get the benefit of the glutamine because the glutamine is recycled ten times and used as an energy source, as an amino acid as well. And you never imbalance the glutamate. So what is glutamine for human Oh, well, glutamine is an amino acid. So glutamine is one of the building blocks of proteins. It's conditionally essential. So if you're under stress, you need glutamine. It's an essential amino acid. It's an essential building block of protein. But more importantly, it's the source of energy for the metabolically active cells that line the intestines. They're called enterocytes. 
That just means cells that line the intestine. And the enterocytes require glutamine for energy because they use energy faster than can be supplied by anything except glutamine. So glutamine is an essential and conditionally essential amino acid that's used for energy to repair the gut. And if you don't have glutamine, or better yet, recycled glutamine, then you're at risk of all the epidemic of epidemics of digestive disorders that have become so common today that if you just throw stones in a random direction, you will probably hit people that have digestive problems. Indeed. But don't do that. Don't throw stones. <laughs> but you can make reasonably right. that same assumption. Yes. yes. Right. <laughs> so of the biomarkers, right. where does that figure in? Well, if we look at the biomarkers, we talked about the first one, which is hemoglobin A1C. It turns out I really don't care what your blood sugar is at any given moment in time, but I care a lot what your average blood sugar is over time, and that's hemoglobin A1C. So if you Which tell me to say, how does that translate into normal parlance for your average uh, listener? Oh, according to the American Diabetes Association, you should stop measuring blood sugar, and you should stop measuring insulin, and you should measure only hemoglobin A1C. So, and the reason you should, oh, the last last couple of years at a minimum. Now, in the late '60s, Paul Gallup, in the late '60s, Paul Gallup was studying sugar on proteins, and then it occurred to him maybe the real problem with diabetes is when there's extra sugar stuck onto proteins. So he picked hemoglobin because it's an easily available protein. It's in red cells. We know how long it lasts, which is the same lifespan as the red cells, which is typically three months. So hemoglobin A1C gives you a measure of average sugar stuck on protein over months of time. It isn't influenced by white coat hyperglycemia. Now, many people know that just seeing a white coat raises blood pressure for a lot of people. But you know the same stress response, the same cortisol stress response, the same adrenaline stress response induces blood sugar to go up. So we don't Are you care. saying don't go see your doctor? No, I'm saying, first of all, diabetics... Make sure he doesn't wear a white coat? No. Um, I'm saying, first of all, people should measure their own blood sugar. They shouldn't have to go anywhere to measure their blood sugar. More importantly, in regard to my personal practice style, I have never worn a white coat. The only time I wear a white coat is at major scientific meetings where there's a photo opportunity. I was taught in Boston as an internist in conventional Western medicine, that if you wanted to scare the patient, you wore a white coat. If you had to assert authority, you wore a white coat. If you had to be dominant, you wore a white coat. But if you were confident enough that you could earn their trust, you didn't need the white coat. I've never seen you wear a white coat. I have one. I have one. It's a very nice one. It has my name on it. Inside it says NIH. But you're right. I have People, one as an acupuncture. Exactly. And, and they're, 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 they're there for decorative purposes. They're there for you know where it came ceremonial from? purposes. Yours? Originally? I don't know. Yours? Madison Avenue. Right. That's where the idea of building the authority right. of a doctor in the eyes right. of the people came from. Right. And by the way, that was a time when there were more eclectic and naturopathic physicians than allopathic physicians. That's right. Exactly. And in the United and Kingdom... And doctors were smoking cigarettes. Doctors were recommending cigarettes to pregnant women or to anxious people as late as the 60s. Amazing. Yeah. 
And in hindsight, the job that the Tobacco Institute did for 30-plus years obscuring the facts was quite a triumph of how um, money can trump um, facts. Bad joke, but I appreciate it. Yep. It was it was strategically brilliant. But what actually broke it was a fellow who had worked as a um, lobbyist for the Tobacco Institute. Then he became a Maryland assemblyman, got elected as a Maryland assemblyman. Then he got cancer. And he discovered that the cancer he got was from the tobacco that he had smoked. And he was genuinely incensed enough that he is the guy who got the inside memos that he had been getting over all those years and finally action happened and there were hearings and people were irate and his wife did tobacco free kids because there was a separate campaign to reduce advertising to young people advertising came out of Media came out of magazines, came out of television, but do you know what came in to replace it? No, direct-to-consumer advertising of ethical pharmaceuticals because the only source of the amount of money in advertising that had been devoted to tobacco could now be only replaced by the ethical pharmaceutical industry. So America is one of two countries in the world, only two in the whole world, that allow pharmaceutical companies to advertise directly to consumers. What's the other? Oh, New Zealand. We bought that. Incredible. So it was a, you said ethical, and I would have to strike that word because I don't think there's anything No, but the, the pharmaceutical industry refers to itself as the ethical pharmaceutical industry. They may. They do, and they do it for a reason, the same reason that white coats white are, coat, confer, yeah. confer authority. But which, exactly. So, you know, we're on the same page here. Uh, that to me does more harm than maybe you know, or the, almost the equivalent of smoking itself. What they are doing in the brainwashing, the drug washing of America, which is going well, on right now, and look maybe. at the oxycodone and the heroin issues, the opioid issues that are the opioid, strangling the our opioid addiction. Right now. The opioid addiction is a completely different issue, and and in regard to that, it is a particularly ironic issue, the opioid epidemic, Mm -hmm. because formulation specialists know how to formulate legitimate painkiller medicines so that they cannot be abused. Isn't that interesting? But half of the market, but half of, well, but half of the market is gray market or black market. That the so-called ethical pharmaceutical companies know full well. And they see, are see, indirectly see, see, marketing you, too. You know what I don't because you know what's in their mind, and I don't know what's in their mind. <laughs> we'll discuss this offline. But um, I'd like to return to your good work regarding mm-hmm. the biomarkers. Mm-hmm. We covered, number one, the hemoglobin. Hemoglobin A1C. so interesting that it's now being measured. That's the measure instead of blood sugar itself directly. I didn't know that. Well, actually, in regard to each of these predictive biomarkers, we set up a very high standard before you could be qualified as a predictive biomarker. You had to have 10-year predictive data. You had to have been done on all geographic, ethnic, and socioeconomic categories. So it's very hard to become a predictive, very high bar, and yet we were able to cover all of epigenetics and find eight tests that qualified against that very high standard so that now you can have a choice 
as well as know where you are at low risk because you're at your goal value. But if you're at risk and not at your goal value or your best outcome value, you can change your habits for three to six months and come back and recheck. And it often takes more than one cycle. But the good news is that people can go from wheelchair-bound to rock climbing in, a, in several cycles of six months, aiming towards healthier habits without fighting or treating any dis-ease, but rather just allowing ease to become the new normal. This is so exciting. I mean, it really is. I mean, you are really, you have stepped up the entire game of wellness Mm -hmm. and wellness thinking and wellness practice Mm -hmm. for individuals in this and all societies based on your high bar that you address all the psychosocial, socioeconomic, and geographical conditions. It's really extraordinary. I mean, you have provided a scientific basis and a footing for the change, the lifestyle changes, and what they should be. Yes, and in the 70s when I became an advocate for wellness medicine, I was challenged by my colleagues who said, so what? So let's say you want wellness medicine. Tell me the test and tell me the value for that individual so that for each individual I can know if they are at low risk and what that means or at high risk and what that means and more importantly what to do about it. And yes, it took some decades, but we're grateful to have been able to pull it together. Well, you know, in a sense, um, by implication in what you're saying here, Russ, you were also involved in helping to develop the entire idea of bioindividuality. Yes, what Roger Williams talked about in the 50s about your beautiful world within and biochemical individuality um, was an elegant concept, but it was not practicable until now. But it is now practicable, and in the 21st century, it's even more important than it was in the 20th century. So let's go back to the science, if you would, sure. to number one covered hemoglobin. A1C. A1C. So average sugar in relation to how sensitive your insulin is. The second is the test of inflammation and repair. That's high-sensitivity C-reactive protein, or HSCRP. And you want it to be at its best outcome value, which means you don't have a deficit in repair. So inflammation is not really a fire to be fought. It's not really an adversary. It's not really um, something uh, that an enemy has delivered to you. It's a simple cry for help and repair by the body, marked by, measured by, HSCRP. And when the HSCRP is at its best goal value, less than 0.5, you have no inflammation. You're able to repair. And if you get stressed, your innate immune system repairs you so fast that you don't get repair deficit, you don't get inflammation. And let me tell a quick story. My son's playing baseball, and one of his teammates managed to connect in a wrong way with the bat. So the bat hit the side of the youngster's face. The young fellow leaves the game and goes, sits over by the shed, and I can see the swelling is coming up very fast towards his eye. So I go over just to see if I can be a concerned adult, the youngster knows that my son, Sky, keeps PERC repair guards, a polyphenolics of coercin dihydrate and soluble OPC, in the dugout. In between innings, he often takes some. So this young fellow said, may I have some of Sky's? Now, 
I am Sky's father. I am not the father to the young man I'm talking to. Fortunately, his parents were there, and they gave permission. So I gave him two per repair guard, and then in 15 minutes I gave him another two. In a half an hour he was back in the dugout. The swelling went down. His eye opened back up. He got back in the game. <laughs> That's what happens when you activate the innate immune system in a young person who's otherwise healthy but got stressed or traumatized, and the outcome is the outcome. The data speaks for itself. Brilliant. So to understand that process, the information happened organically as well it needs to because of the trauma, and the perk guard aided and assisted and abetted the process of healing and recovery and repair so it happened in a more accelerated way? Perk Repair Guard was the solution. However, what's important to understand is that we have had a backwards understanding of almost all aspects of biology. We've had a backwards understanding of almost all aspects of health. And so when we say inflammation, what we really mean is repair deficit. And I can say ruber calor dolor functio lasa in Latin that describes the different stages of inflammation, heat and swelling and pain and loss of function, etc. Except what they didn't tell you was that the whole problem was a repair deficit. And the repair deficit came because the person lacked good things or had too much exposure to harmful things, too much distress, too much toxins. So when you get the nutrients in, you can get the toxins and the distress out. And now, guess what? You have an opportunity to repair, known as inflammation. Inflammation is repair deficit. You don't get inflammation without a repair deficit. Several of my recent articles, which I'd be happy to send you if you want the background, mm -hmm. point out that when you use words in ways that obscure what's going on, your treatments will be um, anti-something, uh, anti-inflammatory, um, immunosuppressive, which is the opposite of what you want to do. You want the innate immune system to come back into strength so that it can recycle, it can eat up the debris, the repair deficit, the wear and tear, or the invader. Because by the, bo by the way, the body doesn't care whether you're an infectious foreign invader or a digestive foreign invader, you burden the immune system in the same way. You're equally foreign to the body. It's not that bacteria are more or less foreign than digestive remnants or food reactions. But, but in fact, we now know through the lymphocyte response assay by ELISA ACT how to measure for each individual what you're tolerant to, what you can digest and assimilate and eliminate without immune burden, and, as importantly, what are the things you comprehensively need to substitute for three to six months so that the other things you're doing can help you really repair. And it turns out that is very individual, and so it matters all of the things you react to. So let's say you react to a couple of common things, and you could avoid those by avoiding common allergens, but radishes or rutabaga or arugula, which for other people might be fine, are causes for immune intolerance because you react against those foods. You would never know what those are without talking to your lymphocytes, the white cells 
that carry the memory of your immune experience. Mm -hmm. When you do an ex vivo lymphocyte response assay, so we measure lymphocyte responses in the laboratory, but just as they occur in the body. That was the breakthrough that allowed functional immunology to become a new field of medicine. In contrast to immunology being the places where you do anti-inflammatories, you did NSAIDs, you did steroids, you did things to knock down the excessively active immune system because your illusion was that it really was a problem rather than an opportunity. So you say inflammation, which of course means a problem to be fought, but no, it's the, the, the problem is an illusion. Inflammation is really repair deficit. And when you evoke the healing response so that the person can repair, then the inflammation automatically goes away because it was always a repair deficit. And the HSCRP, which is a cry for help when you need repair, goes back to less than 0.5. I follow. And it's reminiscent, again, actually, of total biology and the understanding that I had of uh, when I remember the teachers speaking about uh, mammary ductal cancer Mm -hmm. and the inflammation that would show up in the cycle of healing once the emotional conflict is resolved. There will be inflammation and what was said to us, Russ, was that most doctors would see that inflammation and, a cor- and uh, it would correspond in their minds with cancer, and they would therefore look to do a standard cancer treatment. Whereas from the total biological point of view, it was said that the inflammation is a natural bodily response to the re- for repair of the tissue that was broken down from the issue of the conflict. But but let's address that because that's the very common mistake that almost everyone makes. The common mistake is that inflammation is necessary. Inflammation is really a repair deficit. So let's say you have a person with cancer, which means their immune system has already lost tolerance because it's the immune defense and repair system that identifies the abnormal cells that everyone makes every day. So everyone makes cancer cells every day. How come everyone doesn't have cancer? Because after the immune system defends you from foreign invaders and then repairs you from wear and tear, it also goes around and eliminates abnormal cells. So you can only get cancer when your natural anti-cancer mechanisms have somehow become disabled. So re-enable the innate anti-cancer mechanisms. And then the other side of what you said, inflammation is a necessary part of the cancer process. No, repair deficiency... No, no, uh, not of the cancer process, of the repair process. Inflammation is repair deficit. So inflammation only occurs when you lack the essential nutrients that the innate immune system requires in order to do its job. So when you don't have enough ascorbate to charge up and donate electrons to these innate immune system cells, when you don't have enough magnesium, when you don't have to activate B-complex, when you don't have enough omega-3, when you lack essential and required nutrients, you become at risk. If you have a repair deficit, which means you lack something you need, then the repair deficit is inflammation. But I don't want you to have a repair deficit. And by the way, 
many people with cancer who follow a high quality of life, eating what they can digest, assimilate, and eliminate without immune burden, taking in the essential nutrients that they need based on these uh, predictive biomarker tests and other functional uh, and personalized tests. The, um, the expression of inflammation only occurs when there's a deficiency that prevents the innate immune system from doing its job. Now, if you're fighting cancer, or more importantly, if the cancer and you have gotten together and you want it to go away, then I promise you there are definite repair deficits. There are definite immune-acquired problems because the immune system is supposed to kill the cancer cells. So and, and when you and when you and when you allow that to happen, mm-hmm. as opposed to inhibit it from happening, the outcomes are better. In other words, su- supply those nutrients that are needed for the proper repair deficit to occur, so the inflammation doesn't have to occur at all, or for the cancer, for that matter, in that case, to grow. Well, the, the, the growing of the cancer is another whole subject for another whole time because then you get into angiogenesis and, and a whole bunch of things. But you can only have cancer if your immune system has lost its ability as it had for a long time because everyone would have cancer without the ability of the immune system to identify and eliminate cancer cells. So everyone who has cancer has a defect in their innate immune defense and repair system with regard to anti-cancer mechanisms, and that should be restored to the extent possible. And then... They need the amounts of nutrients that they need. So for many decades, people said, oh, well, just take vitamins. Well, how much should I take? And what source? And of which. And of which. And, and I can be very clear that in my experience, when you use the natural form shown beneficial in a clinical study, it works. And when you use a workalike, a synthetic workalike, uh, it doesn't. Classic example. Natural folate has eight forms. I recommend natural folate. Synthetic folate is one form that doesn't interconvert. That's a workalike that doesn't work. Vitamin E, eight forms of vitamin E. You need all of them. I would give all of them. I have included all of them always because that's what's been shown beneficial in clinical outcome studies, not D-alpha-decopherol succinate, the one of eight forms that is most commonly used. It's inexpensive. It's, um, it's legal. But it's a workalike that, in my opinion, doesn't work. So we have specialized in taking the wonderful concepts, the abstract concepts of biochemical individuality and of optimum health and of well-being and of wellness and reduce them to something that actually applies to you as an individual and you can celebrate where you're at very low risk, but you can also do something years to decades before catastrophe by evoking healing responses and removing obstacles to recovery by getting enough of the good stuff in and getting the bad stuff out, by eating the foods that you can digest, assimilate and eliminate without immune burden, but that means you have to understand what's burdening your immune system. So we do recommend these eight predictive biomarkers interpreted to their goal values. We certify health professionals of many stripes and flavors in the WellGuard program through the Health Studies Collegium. We would invite people to be certified in the WellGuard program so that the information that is um, very much a part of my world after all these decades of calling it, can be available to others much more easily than it was to me. And paying it forward, I think, is a privilege that we have because of that. I think it's fantastic. We still have a few more of the biomarkers. We might have to move a little bit more rapidly through Mm -hmm. them, but I would like them to be, if you would, 
stated mm-hmm. so our audience can also do their own diligence and look you up uh, online and uh, fill in, you know, do a little backfilling. Yes, and indeed, I would urge them to look online for predictive biomarkers on Russ Jaffe or predictive biomarkers on betterlabtestnow.com or mm-hmm. Um because we have a lot of information to share. Much of it is available to download so that you can look at it, digest it. Then you can call our health coaches and nutritionalists and have a consultation if that's appropriate. And we do include an interpretation with every result we send out because the first several thousand cases that we did, and we're now, I think, closing in on 80,000 cases and 25 million cell cultures. And by the way, when people say, you can't do a cell culture reproducibly, they're too variable. Well, when I started, the variability on cell culture was 30%, and that is too much. But it's now less than 3%, so we can do a cell culture, an ex vivo lymphocyte cell culture, a functional lymphocyte response assay, more accurately than most labs can measure a sodium or a sugar. So we're very reproducible. We've done a number of outcome studies, every one of which has been successful. The most successful outcome study in fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue, the most successful outcome study in adrenal dysfunction, et cetera, et cetera. So we're adding as we can the science. When we have a little bit left at the end of the day, we put it back into more science. And with regard to these biomarkers, we've looked at hemoglobin A1C and its best outcome value. We've looked at high-sensitivity C-reactive protein. We've looked at homocysteine, which is a detoxification methylation marker that Kilmer McCulley showed in the 60s. When homocysteine went up, you died quickly of heart disease, atherosclerosis, and stroke. When homocysteine stayed low, you didn't. And technically, we now know that methylation and detoxification are controlled by the homocysteine to methionine ratio, you want homocysteine low and methionine high. The next test is the lymphocyte response assay by ELISA ACT. That's the ex vivo immune tolerance and intolerance test. An ounce of blood is taken, sent to us overnight. We culture the cells in the laboratory. We explain what it means in a comprehensive program. Eat this and don't eat that. Take this supplement because of that reason. Look at this mindfulness and environmental uh, rehabilitation. And we reference a health appraisal questionnaire that we created along with the cell culture so that we can get very personal about the interpretation even though we haven't met the individual. We've just met their cells. You met their blood. Yes, sir. Uh, Then there is a measure uh, of how acid the cells are, which is actually a measure of whether you have enough magnesium. So magnesium is nature's calcium channel blocker. Magnesium is a protector of essential fats, but it's also the forgotten electrolyte. And many people know that they or their friends take calcium channel blocker medicines because of a relative excess of calcium and an absolute deficiency of magnesium. But until recently, magnesium was very hard to get in, and it would run out as fast as it would get in. And so we pioneered Perk Mag Plus Guard and Perk Choline Citrate, a globally patented approach to enhancing the uptake and chaperoning the delivery of magnesium to the cells that are hungry for it. And you need enough magnesium to bring that pH after rest to between 6.5 and 7.5. The next test is a vitamin D. And we call it vitamin D, but it's actually a neurohormone. It's the connector between cells that tells cells, okay, we have enough of you, you don't need to divide, or we need more of you, you should divide. And so if your vitamin D is low... for all cells, not just... Oh, every cell... In the body. No, every cell in the world. 
doesn't have to be humans. Cholecalciferol works just as well in, in, in plastids. <laughs> okay. So this is very profound in regard to biology. We've just been overlooking it sure. for centuries. Um, so you want to do an accurate vitamin D level, and you want to get up to the goal range of 50 to 80 nanograms per ml. Then there is the omega-3 test. Do you have a balance of omega-3 to, omega to omega-6 fats? There are good fats that become cytokines. They become communication molecules. They amplify what the, what the body is in need of. They, they get the signal to noise ratio to be favorable. They are very active, these fats. And it turns out they are very easily damaged by oxidation, by oxygen, and by a lack of antioxidants. So we want to have the omega-3 test done to know where you are on the omega-3 to omega-6 balance. And then the last, the eighth test, is a urine test. It's 8-oxoguanine. That's the most unusual. O-X-O-G-U-A-N-I-N-E, 8-oxoguanine. And this is a measure of risk of damage to your DNA in your nucleus and in your mitochondria. The mitochondria is the battery of the cell, but it has its own genetic code. And 8-oxoguanine goes up when your DNA is impaired, when the risk of translation errors is high. And when I say a translation error in DNA, that could mean an increased risk of cancer. That could mean an increased risk of all sorts of suffering. So eight biomarkers. We know what their best outcome goal values are, and we want everyone to be there based on their personalized lifestyle program. Remarkable. And the results that you have seen in the application of these eight tests, biomarkers, has been? It's been humbling. It's been um, more than exciting. Um, we have had many colleagues who have practiced holistic and progressive and functional medicine for decades who have now said, you know, I was flying blind before, and now you've helped me see. So it's like taking people who are nearsighted and giving them glasses. Well, actually, I would say better than that. You provide the nutrient base and the lifestyle changes that allow their eyes to actually see without glasses. Hopefully, and, 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 and with the nuance that now we can find out for each individual what their biochemical needs are. So there is no one-size-fits-all. There is no one secret sauce that's going to get everybody to perfect health. But now we can tell people where they're at low risk and they should celebrate, where they're at high risk and what to do about it, and then you can come back in a few more months, repeat the test, and see how much risk has been reduced, how much health has been enhanced, and if necessary, take the next step towards understanding that individual, their needs for essential nutrients, and their need to get rid of toxic matter, whether it be psycho-emotional, environmental, or just metabolic. Got it. Now, also that factor in here are matters such as sleep, stress, exercise. Yes, although, again, I would suggest that the reality is the opposite of what most people think. The reason you lack restorative sleep, the reason you don't exercise, the reason your get-up-and-go has gotten up and went and you can't find it, <laughs> is fundamental and not attitudinal. When you're in high nutrient... As in organic? Well, as in when you have enough of the essential nutrients, mm -hmm. the ones that your body can't make. When you have enough of the essential nutrients, then when evening comes 
in a certain part of your brain, adrenaline falls and serotonin rises. And why does the serotonin rise? Well, because the serotonin came from tryptophan amino acid from what you ate. But if you have digestive problems and partially digestive food remnants get in the body as foreign invaders, rather as elemental amino acids, now you might lack available tryptophan, tryptophan, so you lack the serotonin. And by the way, melatonin comes from serotonin. Oh, it does. Yes, and I know that people give melatonin, but I don't. I know that people give a lot of downstream things because they know people need those downstream things. But, but I know looking at the cause of why the melatonin isn't present. They're not looking at the cause, which I do want to address, but they're missing a very important other point, which is the body controls melatonin. It never floods itself with melatonin. Melatonin is such a powerful agent that the body makes it and uses it within seconds. That quickly. Because it's a very powerful agent, it does its job, and then it should not be present because it can hypermethylate. Which means? Oh, you can, you can push the body to too much. Will the body automatically eliminate what isn't needed then of no. melatonin taken no. orally? No. See, let me explain that the body never floods itself with melatonin. So when you take a melatonin supplement, you're doing something non-physiologic. The body never floods itself with melatonin because it would be harmed if it did. So we give tryptophan so people can make their own serotonin, make their own melatonin where it's needed, when it's needed. And by the way, we make sure they also have the catalyst, the enzymes that are activated by the vitamins, minerals, and cofactors. Because if you lack those, then nothing's going to happen in the cellular space. So even with the presence of tryptophan, the proper processes won't occur to then produce out of that serotonin and then consequently... No, that's exactly right. So, so So people who still have the mechanistic reductionist understandings and misunderstandings, what they often do is they'll give 500, then 1,000, then 2,000, then 5,000 milligrams of tryptophan. And what they forget is that tryptophan has to be metabolized, which means it has to be converted, which means you've got to have the essential nutrients that do the conversion. So see the person as a whole not as an amino acid deficiency. And we've had exceptional results because we look at the whole system, the system's biology, the sociobiology, a field that just 20 years ago didn't exist, more or less. E.O. Wilson and Bob Trivers created a field, and Bob Trivers, who's written a very interesting new book called The Folly of Fools, explains why we make the wrong choices because we are so confused on the inside because we lack the clarity that comes when we have enough of the essential required nutrients and mindfulness practices. God, so interesting. So you now said what you did about sleep <laughs> and why we may have trouble getting the restorative rest that we need because we don't have the proper serotonin increase then resulting in melatonin production. What about stress and what about exercise? Well, what about stress? Do do you know that life change is considered to be a stress? And Holmes and Rahi became famous by putting together an index, the life stress, life change index. So I was at a meeting once and there were, I don't know, X thousands of scientists there and we were all asked to fill out the questionnaire and they picked the person who had the highest 
stress level, me, and they, and they, me, and their assumption was that when I came up to have a conversation that they would be able to show the stress-related illnesses, none of which I had. So there's eustress and there's distress. And when we say stress, we really... Hans Yeah, and I'll talk to you about Hans if you want. But um, uh, Hans pointed out that in healthy people, the challenges of life are eustressing, beneficial, and helpful. It's only when you're overwhelmed it's only when it becomes distress. distress. And when most people say stress, they think of distress. Correct. When most people say stress, they don't think of you stress. I had the privilege of giving a talk on a program with Hans uh, in the 1970s. Mm. And I went to him afterwards and I said, I'd like a critique. And he looked at me for a minute and he says, you don't want just a compliment. I said, no, no, I'd really like, you're a master at this. He said, you gave a good talk, but I don't, he said he didn't think that everyone in the audience had a personal conversation with me. I would guess that people felt they had a personal conversation with Hans Selye, that he spoke just to them, even though there were thousands of people in the audience. I've done my best to emulate those people and, and to hopefully learn from them. Emulate him. Emulate him specifically. Yes. Because he was clear that you needed to speak truth, you needed to speak truth clearly, you needed to do the science to make truth clear. But you also shouldn't be dissuaded just because people don't get it over many years. And it was years to decades before the father of stress was recognized as the father of stress. But he did excellent science, and he talked about it to anyone who would listen. And eventually they said, well, you know, in the beginning we didn't pay any attention to you. Then you were really controversial for a little while, but now we've known it all along. And that's the goal, is you want to get to the point where that they've known it all along. That always happens, right? <laughs> We always knew it. Everyone knows that. Right? <laughs> but it's a very good point, of course, about stress. I, as a stress management consultant, I right. speak with people about the distinctions among stress. And if you didn't have stress at all, you would just become like a jellyfish. And so in order to build muscle, you have to stress the muscle. Right. Otherwise, it doesn't build. It has to actually break down. Now, this is just basic biology 101. But, in fact, that hasn't filtered into the society, unfortunately, at least in these later generations, and people don't really know this. Well, it depends on how you think. So if you Truly. learn to see the world in the so-called Descartian, reductionist, mechanistic way, Cartesian, correct. the Cartesian mistake, if you, if you are trained to experience the world through that filter then you will not understand what I'm talking about. And only when you recognize the limitations of the Cartesian mistake or the reductionist uh, error um, in regard to biology, in regard to personal health, in regard to systems and how systems biology exists for people. Because you've heard the analogies. The reductionist model says the body is like a watch, made by a watchmaker. You take the watch apart and put it back together. Well, it turns out you can't take the cell apart yet and put it back together, so that's a little weak. Really but, the other side, but the other side is that when we um, talk about the body as if it's a machine with plumbing, as if it's... Um, as, as if it's mechanically, as if it's mechanically inevitably and inexorably going to break down and fail, as opposed to what the body really is, which is a self-renewing, 
autogenic repair enables system when it has what it needs. And when it doesn't, it gives us all sorts of indications that we ignore, and then we end up fighting with the consequences. And whether it be uh, lack of exercise or it be lack of restorative sleep or it be lack of digestive competence or it be lack of will and motivation, then we focus on the symptomatic consequences. And even if we do that more gently, I'm saying we should really go upstream and look at the environmental, attitudinal, nutritional uh, causes, optimize those eight biomarkers, bring them into their best range or goal value based on what you do, what you eat, drink, think, and do, and see what's left. Because we've had people with decades of depression, had the depression lift when their brain chemistry normalized because they needed higher levels of antioxidant and magnesium than other people. And we knew how much they needed from the predictive biomarkers, and once they had what they needed, oh, they became completely different in terms of their mood responsiveness. They still had feelings. In fact, they were more in touch with their feelings, but they weren't at the mercy of them, and there weren't these sub sotto voce, unconscious, uh, unaware drivers. Subliminal. Subliminal or whatever. Um, uh, and um, I have been um, really uh, both impressed and as, a, as, a, as an individual really motivated to change my thinking to be more accurate about biology. For example, in biology, it's always about two things that are in relation to each other, not about the one thing. So it's always about adrenaline to serotonin. It's about cortisol to DHEA. It's about calcium to magnesium. It's about sodium to potassium. Yeah. It's not about it's always any one. relational. It's always a proportion. It's always a ratio. It's always a relationship. And once you realize that life is always a relationship, that changes everything. And now the mechanistic model clearly is immature, incomplete, and fine as a beginning, but not as a place to actually practice high-quality care or evidence-based medicine in the 21st century. Such a revelation. So powerful. And to extend it another step or so is to say that we are also not independent, but that we are interdependent and that a man or woman can be measured to some extent to their relational each other and to the earth and from that point of view, the universe herself. And when you look at it from the perspective that I have, you realize that the reason many people are emotionally immature or stunted in their relationships is because they lack the essential nutrients to stabilize their neurochemistry. They lack the essential uh, required uh, nutrients to have a stable neurohormonal system, to have a competent metabolism and microbiome. Now, we used to say digestion, now we say microbiome. We used to say metabolism, now we say metabolome. Okay, okay. <laughs> I say potato, you say potato. <laughs> but, the, but the takeaway but message no, it's for our listeners... it's actually good, it's a refinement. The takeaway message for our listeners is that if you look through the lens of pathology or the body as a machine destined to fail, you reach one set of conclusions about health, management, treatment, etc. 
But on the other hand, if you realize that no part of you is more than 10 years old, and that's your bones, uh, your large blood vessels and joints are maybe seven years old, and much of you is new from the last few months. So this notion that I'm worn out means not that you really are worn out. It means you didn't get what you needed to repair. You lack the essential nutrients and cofactors to establish and maintain a high quality of repair. Now, one of your teachers, mentors, uh, as you have been to me, is uh, Abram Hoffer, Dr. Mm -hmm. Hoffer, who was on A Better World TV Mm -hmm. many moons ago, and uh, who I also greatly admired. Orthomolecular medicine, does this, that had to do with creating an optimal environment in the brain especially, but not only. And I'm wondering if that was part of your thinking in creating an optimal nutritional environment for all the work that you've done. Abram actually encouraged me to do what I've done because he couldn't. Now, he was a remarkable guy, and he is the fellow who linked up the fact that when adrenaline gets oxidized to adrenochrome, becomes an excitoneurotoxin and creates mental illness. And Abram, he talked about this at many scientific meetings, but he had someone synthesize adrenochrome and he injected it into himself and for three days he was a paranoid schizophrenic. And he kept reminding himself that he wasn't a paranoid schizophrenic, he was a damn fool for injecting adrenochrome. So it's clear that what we think of as psycho-emotional immaturities or imbalances or inabilities... So-called psychiatric pathology whatever that is, um, from, right, from my... Yeah, right, right. See, as you know, I no longer want to make a diagnosis or treat a diagnosis or get caught up in what is exactly the right diagnosis or what parsing of diagnoses and symptoms. Mm-hmm. All of that, from my point of view, gets us down the wrong path. So we want to know what the individual needs based on their predictive biomarkers and then their lifestyle modifications to get to where they want to go. Abram was a genuine giant in orthomolecular medicine, but as he said to me, we're just throwing darts. We use nature to throw the darts as opposed to synthetic pharmaceuticals to throw the darts, but we're in the dark because we don't know what the best outcome value is for the essential tests. Figure out what covers all of lifestyle and epigenetics that you can influence. Figure out what tests measure that. Figure out what the best values are for those tests, and then come back. And now you've come back. Oh, yes. (laughs) And by the way, Abram, like many of the pioneers in environmental medicine and orthomolecular medicine, had a loved one, his wife, uh, who um, who I met as well. Yeah, yes. but when she ate foods that she could digest, assimilate, and eliminate without immune burden, she was perfectly lovely. And if she ate any of the foods that she was immune reactive to, she became a floridly schizophrenic who needed to be cared for. And it, was, and it was all a delayed food reaction in her case. So interesting. Mm. We're almost out of time, believe it or not, so sadly, and I want to just ask a question, however, because even though you did the socioeconomic and uh, geographical 
test. No, no, we didn't. We didn't. In order to become a predictive biomarker and in order to move the needle the way I wanted to with the importance of predictive biomarkers, I had to set very high criteria so that any academic, any skeptic Couldn't would, say, would say, oh, you pick the tests that are really validated, that are really predictive, that are really proactive and personalized and that allow primary prevention. The question I'm going to ask, we probably don't have enough time for you to give a fair response to, but with that said, the solution that you have so brilliantly proposed seems to me that it would only be for a rather small segment of the population mm -hmm. because it requires not inexpensive testing repeatedly or cyclically and the utilization of a very high-quality series of nutrients that are not ordinarily available. Yes, we understand that many people will die because of resource deficiency. But by the way, do you know that people spend tens of thousands of dollars a year to suppress the symptoms of their chronic ill health, and for a few hundred dollars you can get all of these biomarkers and know what to do about them? So yes, they do cost more than a nickel, but they are the best investment you can make if you want to survive the 21st century. Allocation of resources. Dr. Russell Jaffe, I just thank you so much for the good work that you have been, the excellent work that you have been doing for so many decades. I've had the honor and the pleasure and privilege of knowing you as a friend, and I want to continue bringing your wisdom to a better world. May we all be well and happy. Thank you. God bless. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. Thanks so much for joining us, and I look forward to seeing you all next week.